Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And uh, this week, I'm not entirely certain where we are in time. I've been binging Dark on Netflix, which is possibly the most perfect television show ever written for someone obsessed with time travel and intricate plot machinery. Highly, highly recommended if you have the ability to tolerate a full spectrum of human experience ranging from the most sublime and perfect and beautiful and romantic to the most terrifying and desolate. Uh, but at any rate, I feel like that's it's a great show to be watching right now in tandem with Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, which is the, you know, before Baby Goes to Sleep TV show. And I say that because both of these these programs are really helping me right now make sense of the light and the shadow that we are navigating collectively as a species and the way that the lens of history seems on the anthill of human civilization right now, both as a way of increasing the, the, the pressure and the challenge that we're living through, but also as a way of bringing things into focus, uh, making it clear to us how our lives intersect with this longer timeline and uh, you know bigger story and and collection of stories and uh, so it's it's with that that I am very excited to announce that I in addition to continuing to work for the Santa Fe Institute I'm now working also part-time with the Long Now Foundation on community management for their, their members-only Facebook group. And anyone who's been listening to the show for a while knows that Long Now has been one of the biggest inspirations for Future Fossils and, and for my writing and, and speaking and artwork in general. That, you know, it's, it's basically flypaper for a paleontologist, psychonaut. And uh, <laughs> I, I am just really, really pleased to see where this goes. And uh, I know that it will bring me into community and into conversation with a lot of really, really interesting people that uh, hopefully I can wrangle a few of them onto the show. It's just extraordinary group of folks I'm working with there. And so, yeah, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying that my plan for this podcast in the months to come is to spend less time editing and more time publishing, to spend more time actually having interesting conversations that I want to share and less time editing the ums and uhs out of them. Because as an ephemeral record of this time, I've been long ambivalent about the process of cleaning up these recordings. Part of me, you know, just has that uh, obsessive compulsive need to tidy everything up, but also... You know, the, the most interesting stuff for most archaeologists is the trash. And I think there's a solid argument for leaving in all of the warts and moles <laughs> in this show and allowing these conversations to ring true to their original form and flavor. So with that, 
I'm really excited. Again, I'm just excited this week. I'm excited to share this first episode of the new Future Fossils with you with uh, Sahana Chateaupadier, a speaker, a writer, a catalyst, organizational development coach, learning and development architect, instructional designer out of Mumbai, someone I found on Twitter and on Medium, writing some really beautiful pieces about navigating radical uncertainty and leadership in times of rapid change, what it means to listen. We had a really heartfelt and, and soulful conversation, and I'm delighted that this conversation gets to make its way out into the podcasting airwaves and into your ears and perhaps into the way that you live and practice in this world. Be sure to check the show notes for some uh, of her writing that we discuss in this episode, as well as a link to the Future Fossils Patreon, where we just started a three-part book club on Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler, a just amazing and, and very disturbing and awesome work of science fiction. It is not too late to get involved. We have two more weeks of Sunday discussions coming up, and we will make the recording of the first weekend available here in just a few days. So now is the moment where I get to thank all of the amazing new people that have just signed up to be patrons. Jonathan Bells, Cody Lotus Light, Zori Mira, Leslie Bumstead, Taryn Rosenthal, John Morrow, Kai Judson, and raised pledges by Rasmus Hakidal and Zach Mosher. There's 177 people supporting the show right now. It's helping me pay my bills. I'm deeply appreciative for everyone and for the growing community and uh, really active conversations that have been going on in the Future Fossils Discord server. So if you'd like to participate in, in the Discord, that's, a, that's a, a public open thing. You don't need to be a, a Patreon supporter to participate in that. Uh, just drop me a line, Future Fossils Podcast at Gmail or at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram, and I will gladly send you an invite link. Uh, we still have the Facebook group. But it's uh, it's not quite as busy as the Discord server is. So anyway, I really appreciate all y'all tuning in to listen to this remarkable conversation with this remarkable person. I have recordings scheduled every Sunday for the next two months, and I'm doing my damnedest to get Future Fossils back onto a weekly publication schedule. So hit that subscribe button. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts if the spirit moves you to do so. It's extremely helpful in terms of getting awesome new people into our community. Be well, stay safe, and we have an awesome episode coming up next week with Tata Hazumi and Dare Sohei and guest host Naomi Most about cultural somatics, inherited trauma, dance, improvisation, and how to move through challenging times such as these. But for now, please welcome Sahana Chattopadhyay.
Sahana, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Welcome to the my very, very partial attempts at creating a repository of interesting people and interesting conversations that can be exhumed and poured over by imaginary future archaeologists. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me uh, for the space, for this time um, that we have to co-create, I'm sure, uh, what will be a very interesting conversation. And and I've been listening to some of the podcasts, and you've got some of my favorite people there, like Nora Bateson. And so I loved, I, I love what you're doing. And I think those conversations are becoming immensely important in the context of the future that is emerging, that is emergent, and that we are all co-creators of, along with this, you know, very, very living and beautiful universe. So, yes, thank you. I would like to start by just introducing you to people, if you if you don't mind talking a little bit about yourself and and how you came to do the organizational work and the writing that is how I found you. You know, that, that way that you're presenting yourself to the world. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, it goes back almost um, more than 20 years. Uh, I've, I've worked in the corporate for a very long time, almost 18 years, 18, yeah. Uh, I, I learned a lot. I traveled the world. I loved what I was doing. I was in the organization, organization development learning and development, uh, people capability building space. So that was really my niche. That still is my niche. Uh, and I'll explain how. What eventually started happening, I think, especially in the last um, seven, eight years, is uh, I would say uh, I, I started kind of feeling that I'm leading parallel lives, you know. One in the corporate world where I'm playing a role, where I have a role with certain responsibilities and uh, certain obviously outcomes expected of me uh, being in a fairly, I mean, given that corporates are hierarchical, given, uh, you know, the so-called senior role. And uh, what started happening was um, two things. I start. I started reading stuff that was very different from my usual, uh, you know, the the gamut of reading that I'd been doing before that. So not the corporate business stuff, uh, in the so-called corporate business stuff, but very different kinds of things. So I started running and uh, started reading up on spiral dynamics, integral framework. Uh, then happened Otto Sharmer, the whole MIT school of thinking, the Peter Senge's work. 2015 came with Theory U. 2014-15 came with Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux. Then uh, as I started sort of, you know, uh, imbibing those, reading, rereading, thinking, reflecting, I also, I think it was a part intellectual and a part spiritual journey for me. The last, I would say, almost a decade, especially picking up around 2014-15. And when I say spiritual, I'm I'm highly and heavily influenced by 
uh, the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Parker Palmer, and then of course came Joanna Macy and the whole you know thinking of the Great Turning, and the whole ecological uh, space. The and as I read those, what was happening in the world around me, the collapse of the ecosystem, the increasing and the faster pace of disaster, if you will. You know, it was like the disasters were happening one after the other at a at an increasingly faster pace. Uh, pace. So whether it was the rainforests in the Amazon or the bushfires in the Australia or the floods or the earthquakes, and all combined, and then you know the various voices, and all combined, and this whole space of the choices we had made, which have brought us here, the choices that have collectively we have created. Collectively, we have created results that no one really wants. Yet, it, it's, uh, it's almost like the whole system, the structures, the narratives have taken over. And we have created a Frankenstein of a wo- world, of a planet, that none of us want to live in. At least unless you are psychopathic <laughs> or sociopaths, right? And only a sociopath or a psychopath will you know, um, feel great or good about the planet we inhabit right now or the state of the planet. And the increasing level of inequality, the the, the absolute, you know, it's, it's like the 26 individuals in the world own more wealth than 50% of the planet, of, of the population. So all of those started sort of, you know, going on in me and I couldn't get rid of these thoughts. And the more I saw this, the more I imbibed this, the more I deep dived into, you know, frameworks like Theory U and the Integral Framework and all of, and the TEAL organization and what it means, the less connected I felt to the world I inhabited, the corporate world. So for quite a few reasons. One, it was almost like everyone is striving for predictability in an unpredictable world. Mm -hmm. There is this absolute fear, fear of uncertainty. And there's this constant, you know, pressure to plan, forecast, plan, forecast, which you can't do in a complex world. I mean, when, so, so for me, the term VUCA, it has lingered on because I've, I've worked mostly in the technology space in IT companies, large talk, IT companies. Talk, talk a little bit about, I mean, just define VUCA for people because I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't assume sure. everyone knows that. Sure. So, you know, uh, the, the uh, VUCA, VUCA, has been around for, for more than a couple of decades, much more than that, much longer. However, in the last decade, it picked up and everyone started talking about the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And especially so if you happened to be in technology companies, IT companies, which I was. So this was bandied around, mostly in the context of technology being invented, whether it was AI or robotics or 3D printing and machine learning or whatever, you know, the the super, super uber space of technology and how that would one day replace human beings and how we are in the midst of a VUCA world 
which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And hence, human beings need to either become like robots or robots would replace them. And so, so that whole whole co context of VUCA in the context of technology has been around for a long time. But what I increasingly started feeling is that while people spoke about VUCA, no one really understood what it entailed. So it was more like they were talking about, oh, new, technolo new technology is coming, so you better pick up new skills or you'll be out of a job. Or new technology is coming and we don't need 200 people, we can make do with 20. And, you know, those kinds of uncertainties. But no one really understood what VUCA meant till COVID hit us which really plunged us into an absolutely volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world and made us feel that complexity and ambiguity through and through. But so my, so my corporate journey, I kind of, you know, I left the corporate world in 2016, primarily for two, three key reasons that I was saying earlier, which is the striving for predictability and unpredictable world and this refusal to to really step into that uncertainty that corporates have. Then this whole very fixed notion of hierarchy. In a networked world, you cannot have a fixed notion of hierarchy. I mean, that's my feeling. You, there, is a, there is something called fluid hierarchy, which I believe in, where you, know, you take on role-based hierarchy, not, in a, not like a pyramid, but more about related to fluid leadership or related to your your sovereignty agency in that particular context but corporates don't function in that fluid manner corporates uh, are fairly at least uh, most of them if not all are fairly rigid hierarchical still extremely um, focused on profit shareholder profit and the predictability of it all or trying to grasp predictability and so all of that sort of, um, I wouldn't say disillusioned me. I knew what corporates are like. I just felt like a misfit. I didn't fit in any longer. I felt like an alien. And um, so I, 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 I mean, I chose to walk away and uh, not sort of, you know, uh, not play a role that I d could not align with any longer. So when I, I walked away and deep dived, uh, deep dived deeper into what I was doing, which is, you know, which you've seen my writing now. Mm -hmm. My earlier writings of 10, you know, seven, eight years ago were very different. But uh, so the more I thought and reflected and wrote, I think two, three things um, started coming up for me. And of course, uh, I've had, you know, I've been listening and reading to thinkers today, people, uh, the regenerative movement, people like Daniel Wall, uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and the whole Rebel Wisdom uh, podcast. So people talking about very different world, very different futures, uh, you know, whether you call it Game B or whatever. And uh, the whole space of complexity and emergence have been fascinating me for years. And I've been writing about ambiguity, wicked problems for quite a long time. And then when I stepped out and I started deep diving into these, I realized that there are quite a few interconnected threads. One is that we have created a world 
based on uh, what what I uh, what uh, based on very rivalrous dynamics, based on scarcity mindset, based on this whole notion of if uh, if I have to win, you have to lose. So that's passe. That's no. That's outdated. That's not going to work anymore. Then we've created a world which is which puts human beings at the top of the pyramid. Again, not going to work. We are just a part of the universe, just like anyone else, just like the birds, the bees, and the you know the fungi and the microbes. So the more I started feeling uh, in tune with the living universe, the less I could align with the value systems that have been driving us so far. And it's not been like it's not like a decade. I know it, we've been driven by this whole notion of a mechanical world for the last three hundred years. You know, ever since Newton said it, and whoever else. And so the whole notion of uh, organizations as machines, the world as machines, everything being knowable, everything can be taken apart and you know put back together piecemeal, no longer worked for me. And that's where my what you see in my writing are the different kinds of notions of uh, leadership, of for leaders as facilitators, of designing very different kind of organizations which are based on regenerative values, of uh, based on whole systems thinking, based on an understanding of what it means to be a complex adaptive system, and. Yeah, so so that's the long and that's kind of a long winded response to my past and where I am now. Good, that's the kind I like. Um, so the notes that I've taken for this this call emphasize focus on two of your writings. One's the two part essay that you wrote on the future, the, the power of communities in uncertain times, and one is on befriending uncertainty in a post COVID world. Although. You know, post-COVID is itself sort of a tricky thing, right? Because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily look like we're going to be just done with that all of a sudden. Yep. So yeah, so when you were talking about being a misfit and and you know f- feeling as though I don't know how to put this, maybe like the fractal boundary of your coastline, the more closely you observed it, the the less it looked like it fit into the sort of rectilinear you know, uh, coordinates of a, of a, uh, corporate setting. And in, in the power of communities and uncertain times, you have this beautiful, uh, excerpt from T.S. Eliot's The Rock that I just want to read here and then use as grist to propel us into, into something. Um, you know, when, when, uh, my friends who host the weird studies podcast just put an episode out about the tarot card of the fool, um, just examining that card and examining um, the fool as, you know, both the way that it's commonly understood, you know, foolishness, uh, ill-advised behavior, but then also the sort of divine or, or holy fool and the wisdom of the fool. And they talked about the stranger and the, and the, 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 the coat of many colors, the motley, you know, patchwork, the Harlequin, the, you know, the Joker, um, the way that someone who is wearing uh, a little bit of everything has no, you know, it's literally wearing, you know, 
all of the colors from all of the different clans or houses or whatever. And so you, th- that person has something of all, all of the, the affiliations, but cannot be recognized as exclusively belonging to one of them and is therefore a stranger to everyone. And so when you, you know, this is, this is the T.S. Eliot piece because I think that this frames things very well. When the stranger says, what is the meaning of this city? Do you huddle close together because you love each other? What will you answer? We all dwell together to make money from each other or this is a community. Oh, my soul. Be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. And then so like, that's awesome. And that this is, this is part of it is how it's the question. It's in the questioning, you know, like you said about becoming non-attached to the desire to have an answer for everything. And when things are VUCA, or, you know, in, in military terminology, I think they would describe it as foobar. Uh, but, you know, it's like, it's not foobar. It's just not um, easy to model, yeah. right? Um, that the questions in, in a certain way become more important than the answers. Because the answer is not a place where you can stand for a very long time, you know, because things are changing. And so... Uh, knowing how to orient ourselves, um, you know, like you're thinking of like a sailing metaphor, knowing how to how to how to tack the sails uh, into against the wind is more important than knowing which direction you think you're going to be trying to point that boat. So I don't know. I just that that seems like a, a, a fine place to sort of open and and. Uh, detail this this discussion and and you've said m- many beautiful things that I'll link people to in the show notes in the in the right the writing that you've done on this but um, yeah let's I don't know what is that where does this what does this inspire in you now thanks Michael so I think increasingly and I'm also very influenced by Rilke who, you know, who asks us to live with the questions, right? Mm. And I love Rilke. And uh, increasingly, I think, um, so there are three, four notions uh, that were going on then, and that's also coming up, coming alive for me now, as I heard you uh, read that poem, and I love that poem. So one is, I think, whenever we pose ourselves as solution providers with the answers to questions, you know, we are coming from a, a notion of, I know this, I'm an expert. B, very often we jump in with answers because we are too uncomfortable to sit with the question. Questions without answers leave us in that liminal space of uncertainty that most of us find, or rather most of us are not comfortable with. So we rack our brains for a solution, for an action, for an answer. The third point is uh, related to this is, I think we come up with answers, or rather we want to, 
because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel, oh, we know this. We know we are in known realm. We are not hanging in some twilight zone in a liminal space of, you know, uncertainty and ambiguity. We know this. What happens when we try to give answers is we are most often drawing from past knowledge in some form or the other and framing it in a way that answers that question that is, you know, occupying that space. However, if we choose to dwell just in the question or we, are, we choose to live with the question and, and welcome questions, I've often seen that just, just holding space for that question or questions you know, opens us toward to uh, to probabilities, possibilities that did not exist before. So it's a it's. I would almost say that if we can collectively hold space for questions, we are collectively creating space for emergence. And when uh, I saw that, when I read that poem, what Eliot says, you know, beware of the stranger who knows how to ask questions. It's, it's also, got, it's focusing us, bringing us to those critical questions. If we have the questions right, then they can be true compasses rather than you know, predictable answers. Because questions, like you were saying, you know, when we're tightening the sail on a boat, we are not looking for a map. You can't have a map to an unknown land. But questions can be compasses. Mm. Right? I keep a compass on my desk, actually. This is one of my most favored, like, valued sacred holy possessions this is a uh, a brunton compass uh my my childhood role model and mentor robert bacher the paleontologist kept one of these on his person at all times it's got an altimeter uh and i mean sorry an inclinometer and a level in it and it's a waterproof you know steel compass with like a sightline mirror and wow. they don't make them anymore. Um, they make them, they're plastic now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is, yeah, this is, uh, I feel very strongly about that, that, you know, that, um, yeah, everything you just said. Yeah, because for me, a compass is a metaphor. It, it's, see, a compass will not show you the new land, but it's kind of guiding you step by step provided we have the courage to take that step. As you take one step, it shows you the next and the next and the next. So for me, questions are like that. They are compasses, provided we can stay with them, hold space for them, 
And when we collectively hold space for questions worth asking, then we are definitely, um, what I would like to say, listening to the new, listening the new into being. Mm. You know, when you deeply listen, something new emerges. So, in this this same essay on the power of communities in uncertain times, you mention um, you say. Let me digress a bit and explain what I mean by communities. It is not an echo chamber where homophily, a fancy word for groupthink, homophily is, for those who are not familiar with the lingo of complex systems, uh, it is binding to oneself, like literally self-love. Um, but it, it, it just means that uh, as uh, the uh, the interactive artist's Nikki Case has made an awesome example of on their website. Um, you can play this example of of the uh, shelling segregation model, which is where um, you realize that even just a, 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 a sort of slight preference for communicating with people like you who think the way that you do uh, leads to segregated neighborhoods. And that you have to actively go out of your way and express heterophily, uh, you know, the love of otherness, the love of the stranger, uh, in order to, like, create a, a, you know, a properly mixed heterogeneous conversation. Um, and so you say uh, communities come into being when diverse individuals come together in service of a pur purpose larger than themselves, a purpose that feels aligned with their own calling and invites all on a co-creative journey that moves them toward that purpose. So my, my cousin Samantha used to work for an ad agency that, that was contracted to the BMW group in Berlin. And she told me a few years ago, and I became, I was like just rippling with this strange desire and longing and frustration and anger when she told me this, that BMW has a group of uh, has a department of internal disruption that they actually have people inside the company that are trying to perform this function that I think is sort of like the function of a joker in a, in a in a royal court which is to get to shake people out of their assumptions to provide more of a compass than a map to uh, you know to offer um, uncomfortable insights and and i was like well where is where is that why isn't that a part of every company like why can't i have why can't i just apply for that job somewhere because i feel more identified with that job description than i do with like any particular community i've tried to get involved with and um and here you are and you're still working in the organizational space and i'm curious what you think uh, all of this is just sort of uh you know, a, a roundabout way of coming to, around to asking you, you, you must have some hope for the corporate and the institutional world to continue to work in this way with these institutions and with these people. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, what you see as the difference between what a community is in its full 
splendor and it's like, you know, the manifestation of its potential and what uh, companies are today and what companies could become, you know, like, is it possible that we're able to square the circle here? Yeah. Thank you. First, I'm a diehard optimist and I totally believe that organizations and institutions have the power to do immense good. They can either hurt or heal and, and in, in, you know, in depth and breadth. When I mean that, what I mean is, see, institutions or organizations, and I'm, I'm using the word kind of, kind of interchangeably, they are already large ones or small ones. They are already communities of people in the sense they've already attracted a set of people who have formed that organization, playing different roles, doing their work, or and, and doing whatever to make that organization run. The What has, in my opinion, what has gone wrong is that the narratives that the organizations today are based on, the narratives of profit, power, privilege, have created a world that even I guess they find it difficult to live in. I'm honestly saying how many people get up in the morning and think, oh, today I'm going to do X, Y, Z to increase X ABC shareholders' profit. I mean, that really cannot be the purpose of any organization. But that that's what organizations have um, kind of become reduced to. That, and, and I feel that they have become reduced to this because of the narratives, underlying structures, stories, and systems that run those organizations in the sense that have been created over generations, over decades, and have finally reached a stage where they are no longer working. Those narratives and structures are outdated, obsolete, and dying. So, yes, I do have hope for organizations. And what I mean when I say organizations can become communities in their full splendor, like you said, is that organizations can, with facilitative leadership, support people into becoming the kind of communities I've described, which are communities of very diverse people. And when I say diverse I'm using diversity, you know, like Scott Page describes diversity as not only diversity that's apparent, you know, the sex and gender and the skin color and the hair color. That's not, I mean, that is one kind of diversity, of course, um, and very important, very important in creating a balance. But I'm going even deeper and I'm saying diversity of perceptions, of values of mindset, of my worldview, of my way of um, seeing a problem, of my way of approaching a human being, of my way of communicating. So diversity at multiple layers. And when we really and truly embrace diversity, and for this, I would say it needs really great facilitative leaders, then what happens is, A, people bring their whole selves to work. 
B, they are, because they feel a sense of belonging, they are working at their fullest potential. C, such diversity is extremely critical in a complex situation. I mean, you can uh, deal with a simple problem or even a complicated problem without or with people who think alike. But when, if I, you know, I'm talking of the Cunevin framework, when I'm in the mm. third quadrant of the Cunevin framework, the complex or the chaotic, you absolutely need diversity. Diversity of thought, of worldviews, of, of values, of background, of experience, of, of every level of diversity for people to perceive and understand and see a situation from through various lenses. And when that diversity is fully embraced, from that diversity comes the synergy, which gives rise to emergence of completely novel, a new set of thinking, ideas, structures, systems, whatever. And that's what I meant when I said that organizations can, they have it in their power to facilitate such, for, such kinds of communities so that A, they become more resilient and anti-fragile because diverse communities will constantly give rise to new thoughts and ideas. B, they become not only thrivable and regenerative, but they become a place or platform. So organizations can become platforms for people to bring in their fullest potential. But having said this, and I completely believe that organizations can do it if they hold this purpose and intention with, you know, with and honor it, really, really mean it and honor it. But it requires, I would say, a very different kind of leadership from what we see today. And I think we are uh, facing a leadership crisis globally in every sphere at every level. So you need very different kinds of leadership to facilitate such communities. So that's actually the next question I wanted to ask you was to un unpack and and explain what we you know, like like an unboxing video or a teardown or something. <laughs> Maybe that's not the best example because a teardown is sort of counter to the the principles of emergence, um, uh, very kind of reductionist. But at any rate. Um, I want to hear you speak a little bit to the qualities of facilitative leadership and to what you see as the reasons for the leadership crisis that we're in right now, other than obviously that I, I think like there's the obvious piece, which is that a lot of the styles of leadership that are being practiced in the world right now came in less turbulent and more stable times. They're adapted for a, a, a slower world. Um, but I think we also kind of, uh, we have a bad habit, those of us alive today on this planet, of on average thinking that our times are exceptional, that that in some way, you know, within this, the orb of relevant concerns that there were not times like this before for people. And like even going back to like 
World War One and you know that that sort of first wave of global industrialization. It's a, it's extraordinary. Like just to think how fast the world was electrified. Yeah. You know, and so it's, these are not totally unprecedented, but that's maybe a tangent. Um, anyway, I'm really, yeah, I would love to, I'd love to talk more with you about facilitative leadership and why you think that that's a response to a crisis in the, whatever you would juxtapose that against. Yeah. So I think, um, so my, my observation, my, uh, life experience in corporates and outside of it, and uh, you know, and my reading and so all of that combined uh, have brought me to this place where I I kind of you know um, I kind of feel sorry for people who are leaders today. I mean that sounds weird, but let me explain. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like. <laughs> It's almost like, you know, we have let down a few generations of, uh, and when I say leaders, I'm using the term with caution because sometimes uh, we also mistakenly fall into the trap of thinking there are certain kinds of people who can become leaders because they're charismatic or power driven or whatever. I don't think that's true. What happens, of course, is there are people who are ambitious, who want to rise, in, and I'm talking largely of the corporate or even the political uh, sectors, or maybe uh, applicable to other uh, spaces as well. Uh, but I think the leadership models that came up post-World, uh, the Second World War, have let down generations of leaders because they glorified this... Uh, the, you know, the glorified, this competitive, aggressive, hyper-masculine, uh, almost, uh, some, almost uh, arrogant and cruel, and this, this macho image of leadership that people who went through that, you know, whatever, the MBAs and leadership training and executive leadership courses and whatever people go through, kind of fell into the trap of believing this is what leaders have to be like. And I'm calling it a trap because I think, and I think better, uh, I think highly of men. I don't think men, and I'm using the word men with caution because, you know, the kind of, uh, the, the paradigms of hyper-masculine leadership have affected not only men, but also women who felt they had to be like that to be seen as powerful and as leaders and as strategic and as, you know, win it all or the winner takes it all. Or if you look at the phrases also, they are kind of, you know, they make me go, what? What were we even <laughs> thinking about? <laughs> and what does it even mean? when? So, you know, this whole rivalrous dynamics at play the scarcity dynamics that created this whole leadership paradigm where people who became leaders or who wanted to become leaders or who were at the top of the game or at the top of the pyramid or wherever they were felt they had to be like that and so they became like that and if you you know if you feel at 25 you have to be like that by 55 you've become like that and they spawned generations of younger leaders whom they mentored and coached into becoming like that 
So all the values that did not fall in those paradigms, absolutely human values. I mean, I do not like to use the binary of feminine or masculine. That's again a binary. And I, I'm saying human values, just general human values of curiosity, compassion, courage, creativity, communication, collaboration, cooperation, just fell by the wayside. It's not like, you know, these, these, were, these were human values. And then, of course, what happened was we had these generations of leaders creating huge mega organizations and multinational companies leading the way they did. So that kind of propagated and propagated and spawned more leaders like that. So when I say first, and that's not going to take us, uh, it's, so that worked for a while. That worked in, like you said, a slower world, a more stable world, and a world that was focused on building. So after World War II, there was so much of destruction. I mean, there were engineers building roads and bridges and you know technology. And so the world that was focused on building and um, kind of had a mechanical focus, treating the universe as a machine worked with that kind of leadership. But that model is now outdated and obsolete. And we are increasingly in the space where we are realizing that the universe is not a machine. Neither is it a bag full of resources for us to grab and use. Nor is it going to be very kind to us if we are expo exploitative and extractive all the time. It will give, and it has given for some time, right? And now it's no longer willing to give. We had better learn to cooperate and collaborate with the universe and with each other. And that requires a whole new, I would say, of way of looking at leadership, of way of looking at organizations, and leaders who are best suited for these times of uncertainty and ambiguity are those that will not have their egos dented because they don't have an answer. If my life, if my identity as a leader depends on me being the solution provider and the director of all actions, then this time of uncertainty is either going to make me hunker down and do everything that I shouldn't do, or it's going to make me lash out at anyone and everyone who questions my style. So we need leaders who can step back from their ego, move into an, like, you know, like Otto Sharma says, from ecosystems thinking to ecosystems thinking, really stay fully and wholly present, not with their ego, but with their true selves, are, have invested time in inner work and self-awareness, can stay with uncertainty and ambiguity, can actually welcome uncertainty and hold that space for potentials, for the latent potential. And I think of such leaders as almost like imaginal cells of the future. Maybe it's asking a lot. And it's not going to come from people who have gone through their rigorous MBAs and executive leadership programs, learning how to be forceful and, and you know, uh, aggressive or competitive. It's going to come from people 
who have learned how to hold space for others to show up, who have learned how to come from a place of trust and intention rather than power and force. And it's, it requires a whole new way of looking at leadership, not as answer providers, but as, uh, I would say, the stranger who's asking the question. So we're talking about making the fool the king here. Kind sort of. of. Yeah. Kind of. Um, which is, what is it? I don't know if you ever saw, I, I grew up watching this this bizarre cartoon called The Tick, which was like a satire of superhero stories. Uh, no, I haven't seen um, that. It was, I was sort of like a child's version of Alan Moore's The Watchmen, where it's like the, the city is just teeming with superheroes and they're all stepping on each other's feet. Um, and at one point, the, the our protagonist, who's this, you know, muscle man in a weird blue, out, you know, tick outfit is talking to his buddy Arthur who's a, a, a weird nerd in a moth outfit and they're out fighting crime together and Arthur says I feel like I'm going crazy and the tick says you're not crazy you're going sane in a crazy world <laughs> and so that's what I grew up with and and you know I think about it and and I think there is a an inversion that's happening here, yes. like you just described, that makes, uh, you know, when I was talking about this uh, with uh, David Krakauer, who is probably the best example I have of what you're talking about at the Santa Fe Institute of someone who is very radical and very committed to the uh, what he calls like the kill your parents potential of science to just constantly <laughs> overturn itself. And um, very iconoclastic, and yet in this very elite situation of you know having to to act as as the uh, charismatic figure at the helm of a uh, you know an institution that is frankly very preoccupied with prestige and image and and you know holding its own uh, against other. Uh, or, or amidst other institutions that are operating on 10 or 100 times its budget. Um, and, you know, I, I, every day I go to work, I think about how odd it is, our situation, like how, how atypical it is, and whether it would be possible to actually see something like this at scale you know, especially part of it is that SFI is so small, you know, and it's like it's hard to imagine a leader like that at Coca-Cola or like, <laughs> you know, I mean, even, you know, people could point to like, I don't know, Elon Musk or whatever. But even that is like, that's not really what I don't think what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so you um, you make this distinction in in your work that I really like and, and I think speaks to this and would be interesting to explore. And it's not just about leaders in a position of leadership, right? Because like you said, this is fluid and, and the, the whole thing is that, you know, you may find yourself in a position of leadership yeah. simply because things have been shaken up and that's where you landed. Um, so you make this distinction between power over 
power with and power to. And I feel like this gets us into a place where we can start exploring what it is to be this kind of facilitative leader um, in a way that is not simply about listening and holding space for other people that is a little bit more kind of in that kind of active, proactive, assertive kind of way that we're used to thinking about leadership, but is, is sort of more, more about maybe stewardship or uh, nourishment cultivation. So yeah. um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So I've been thinking about this for a very long time because um, I do believe, uh, like you said, we will find ourselves in in positions, and I'm using the word quote-unquote positions of leadership because things are being shaken up and because we will all come across situations where there will be no one to tell us what to do because no one knows what to do. So, and you're right, it's, it's not only about holding space for others or, you know, creating that safe container and trust and emergence and deep listening and all of that, generative conversations, blah, blah, blah. It's also about sovereign, sovereignty and agency that I feel I have, you know, that, that's so closely associated with power. But when I, when we say power, we usually see or immediately what comes to mind is someone with power and someone below him or her. You know, where power is seen as the the possession of a few in positions of power. But what I'm talking about in terms of you know this fluid leadership, this that situations will put us in is the power not over others, but power that exists in the space between people, power shared with others. So it's, 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 for example, you know, it's like if you imagine a community, the truly diverse, splendid, that, you know, that absolutely vibrant community the power in that community doesn't lie with one individual or individuals. It lies in the space between individuals. It is those connecting networks that creates that web of power. It's not over anyone. It's shared with all. However, what is also important is the power that we feel within. So power over, power with, and power within. If I don't feel that agency within, I'm not going to be in a position to to be the leader I can be, to either hold space for myself or others. And what and in this in this situation of you know complex dynamic complexity and dynamic fluidity, which is constantly flowing. I believe that power becomes, let me rephrase that. I think power is the ability that people will have when they can collectively 
sense into what is wanting to emerge. It is not so much as power by itself, but the collective intention that facilitative leaders can hold with others and sense into what is wanting to emerge and step into the emerging future or, or co-create that emerging future. It's not a simple dynamic of, I have power, I tell you what to do. It is the power that lies in the system itself. And I'm a part of that system. And I, as a leader, can then steward, nurture, and nourish that space and others to, to step wholly into the, what that system wants to become and co-create that emergence. Does so, that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I feel like I'm banging my head against all the time in my considerations of these things is, like you said earlier, you know, it's not like people go to work and they say, most of them do not yeah. say, I'm going to help this company meet the bottom line. You know, that's, yeah. that's, you know, most of us are not thinking, all right. Today, I'm going to use 30 times more energy than you would expect for an, a mammal of my size. <laughs> and yet we yeah. do, you know, it's like there's the, the, the uh, kind of terrifying thing about how streaming Netflix uh, two hours a night is like the same as same amount of electricity as running your television for an I mean running your refrigerator for an entire year and you know it's so like all of this all of these uh second order and and you know nth order um consequences of our lives are are abstract they're hidden from us uh because we're actually so much more in in sort of the mathematical sense than we are aware of because so much so much of our the processes that support us are spread all over the planet and yeah. so on so you know our participation in these systems is not um totally conscious and our choices are constrained by where we find ourselves in those systems yeah. and so you know part of this is like what is this kind of how does this nuanced uh like more clearly differentiated idea of power and sovereignty sit in a contemplation of the tension that we hold between our individual desires and like the the needs of our planet the needs of our animal bodies and the realities of our lives within the bodies of these larger systems that seem to be basically dominating the, the, the historical trends right now. Like I think, you know, I, I had this thought a while back that if I were an alien species coming to earth, I'm not sure I would recognize human beings as, as the like dominant agencies on the planet. You know, I would, I would, you know, maybe the smallest unit that I feel like I could have a conversation with would be a symphony orchestra, you know, <laughs> and then 
uh, but they're not like great at having conversations. They're just going to say what they're going to say. They're not great at listening <laughs> and then responding. Um, and, and frankly, neither really are corporations or at least or, or governments at the time scale that we need them to right now. And so, I mean, that, you know, to this, to the extent that this show has always been about exploring time, um, uh, it seems like there is this gap between like what a you know a, a red blood cell in my vein wants right now and what i want and mm-hmm. that's similar to the gap between what i want and what the united states wants mm-hmm. and it's like i can't do any i don't feel like i can do anything about that um mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people you know that's where the the issue of sovereignty gets really tricky Because so much of the social unrest going on right now is because people are systemically oppressed. And there's, you know, it's it's not clear how our I mean, our our individual actions can ameliorate this, can heal this, transform it on an interpersonal level. But it's not clear what kind of interventions we can make at scale um, when we're, you know, when we don't have our own fingers on the levers of. Yeah. the kind of power that can make those changes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts yeah. on all of this? Yeah. I, again, I think this is the dilemma we are all in. And I often feel that I'm writing articles that maybe a handful of people have started reading, but then so what? What difference does it really make? If I don't write, nothing. I mean, no one will even notice I haven't written. But when, and to, you know, to take a couple of threads that you've mentioned forward, one is power, the other is sovereignty. The third is our our power to effect real change as individuals. I I believe that as individuals, I mean, while it is important that we do our own, you know, uh, healing because what is inside gets reflected outside if I don't do it. But it's there has to be a collective shift in consciousness. There has to be a systemic shift of values. The values that we have, you know, ridden upon for so long are not are not working anymore. And so all of these are very, very systems issues are at a very, I wouldn't even call them systems. They're like at a meta systems, mega systems level, interlinked systems and systems and systems, complex and not going to happen in the next 10 years, not in a decade. However, going back to power and sovereignty, I think that when we talk about power, we so even if you look at the people, so-called, and this is my my understanding, at the you know at the top of the game or you know the top of the ladder or whatever they're top of, the top the twenty-six richest individuals on this planet, they are, and this is my my uh, feeling, strong feeling, they are not driven by what is coming from within them, they are driven by the external parameters driving them, which is gain more wealth, gain more power, do this and do that. They have lost themselves to themselves. And ultimately, what I feel that they have 
you know, that power has become equal to profit and privilege and, you know, poly political know-how and whatever else, okay? But that's not true power. True power, when I relate it to sovereignty, comes from a space of my inner alignment with my core values and what I'm able to do with myself, myself as not I've, myself as an agent of, I'm not saying I'll effect change, but myself as an agent of designing my life with my own potential. I mean, all of us are unique, non-fungibly unique, and we have gifts that, I mean, I express the same, a, a particular point in a way, and you express that same point in a very different manner. So when we bring our own unique core power together, it's not going to happen as individuals. And no one system, no one individual can be pitted against a system and hope to win. Having said that, those systems are also man-made or rather human-made. And no one gifted those to us. They are not universal truths handed down from somewhere. We created them over decades, over centuries, through our choices, through the, you know, through our choices like the GDP being the measure of a country's growth. Who said it? I have no clue. I mean, he must have, uh, I, I, I don't even know who said it. And why have we taken that as gospel truth? So basically, we have ceded power to a set of frameworks and structures and systems and stories that have been running the show, created by some a handful of individuals, uh, maybe 200 years back or 100 years back or 300 years back. So whether it was, you know, uh, Newton or whether it was John Locke or whether it was Adam Smith or whoever else. And we've ceded power to those whatever they said 300 years ago, which was which may have been truth for them, but doesn't have to be true for us now. So basically, we are following a set of uh, obsolete structures, and those who are using the structures to their benefit think they are powerful. You spoke in your, your piece on befriending uncertainty in a post-COVID world. You say this here, I like this, this quote, our privilege is no longer our refuge. Our privilege now bestows on us a grave responsibility, a grave responsibility to reclaim our humanity and all that it entails, compassion, care, empathy, connection, justice, equality, and dignity for all. I do think, you know, I, I remember uh, the historian William Irwin Thompson in a lecture that he gave for the Lindisfarne tapes on the book of Exodus and uh, revolution and looking at sort of a, a, a cross-cultural analysis of revolution through history. And, he, you know, he said Moses was able to lead the exodus of the Jews from Egypt precisely because he was in, he was, I, I guess you could say like the middle class, 
you know, like he was a poor child brought up in royalty. He had identity and sympathies for both sides, but more importantly, he understood the thinking of both sides, you know, and, and, and Thompson said that, you know, if you're, if you grow up in the court and you're used to just being able to do something, like you were talking about, this one kind of power is just like, I can express myself onto the world and change it to suit me. Um, niche construction, you know, that uh, you're not going to understand what the other, you're not going to see what the problem is in a way that the, the poor do, but that the poor have been brought up with a boot on their neck. Yeah. And yeah. so they don't, they, there's a, there's a, a, a and I, I've experienced this for sure. I've, I've, I've seen both sides of this. I grew up, you know, uh, affluent to a point of just complete superfluity and like, it seems gross to me now. Um, but then my, in my adult life, you know, I was um, rootless and, and, you know, completely un, unmoored and, and broke as all hell for a long, 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 long time. And he said, you know, this, this learned helplessness makes it impossible for revolutionary movements to come from the very bottom of the social yeah. class structure. Yeah. Um, and so you need, you need people that are, that recognize there's a problem and want to upset things and want to change things. And then, but also are not just completely discouraged and demoralized and, and convinced uh, because it's in the interests of people who want things to remain the same, that nothing can change. Yeah. And and yet also we're at a point now where the, for, you know, at least in the United States, and I think for much of the world, the drive to optimize ourselves according to these inherited standards has hollowed out yeah. the middle class from which a revolution might emerge yeah. You know, yeah. that, that it's, it's getting, it's getting harder to see. I don't know. It's, so that's just sort of where I am with it, which is like, you know, when we talk about this sort of new definition of privilege, which I guess if you're talking about like power is not just a, you know, a, a privilege that you have over someone else, yeah. but it's a privilege that you have with other people yeah. and yeah. a privilege that you have to do something. Yeah. Um, what are you, how are you guiding people into enacting that privilege now in your work? And like, what are your, what are your reflections on, on your privilege and, and how you're working with this in your own life? Wow. That's a great question. So uh, I'll touch upon a few things that you mentioned that, you know, uh, so you said, you know, it's it's the you know, those who have been systematically oppressed ha, ha, don't have or also have had their access taken away, access to education, access to good health care, access to nutrition, access to platforms that, you know, that could where they can express themselves. So and I'm also talking of the, of uh, 
for the context of India, for example, I take my smartphone for granted, right? With all my access and my privilege. <laughs> Not many in India can. So that's another form of systemic oppression. For example, today, all the schools across India, across India are closed because of COVID. And now that the government has said, okay, there will be classes online. We are seeing how hollow that is turning out to be because those who can access classes online are probably 5% of the population of a massive country like India. The rest don't have access to classes online. They don't have internet or Wi-Fi or computers at home. So there are villages where, uh, and this is just a small anecdote, there is a teacher in a, in a remote village in India who is, who is definitely a dedicated teacher who wants to teach his children. But the children don't have access. So the teacher has made this little platform on top of a tree in the middle of the village square. He climbs up onto that platform every day and broadcasts his class with a mic so that children can hear because they don't have online access. Ingenuity, innovation, and love for his kids that's driving him, right? But so when we think of, when we think of oppression, it comes in many forms, direct, indirect. And, you know, also at, at a very subconscious level, because it seeps in through generations. Then, of course, when I mean, it is complicated by race and caste and color of your skin, it's a whole new ballgame. So that's, that's a, I mean, that's a discussion by itself. But when we, when we say privilege, and if I have the privilege and the recognition of my privilege, because very often, privilege makes me deaf, dumb, and blind. I don't recognize I have a privilege, that I have the smartphone, that I have a home to shelter in, a comfortable room from where I'm taking this call. So that kind of privilege then gives me the responsibility of doing something with it. And that's what I was talking about. And how am I... So I think right now what I'm doing most is through my writing, trying to reach out, trying to, you know, uh, put my writing out there in, in the best possible way I can so that even if it touches five people, it touches five people. And I've tried speaking about privilege with leaders with people who really have privilege but very often it's met with so very often it's met with this whole thing whole notion of what has worked for me in the past will continue to work for me so as as the world collapses i am seeing two kinds of people people who are really clinging on and wanting to get back to the you know, new normal, thinking new normal will be like the old old ways. <laughs> and and how I hate that phrase. And and people who are 
kind of giving in to despair and negative, um, I would say, pessimism about what is happening in the world. The very rare third kind I'm seeing are people who are seeing this collapse as a crucible, a meltdown of the old structures that were no longer working and an opportunity to re-envision, re-imagine new ways. But they are a very tiny minority at the moment. I don't know if I answered your uh, you know, thoughts, but uh, these are some aspects that I've been observing. Well, I, Sahana, I'd like to give everyone on this show uh, an invitation to, I don't know, speculate or listen into um, this question, which is, if the future is in some sense already happening, uh, you know, if, if you're living in light of the ancestorship that you possess, the, the role, however minor or major you play in, in the historical unfolding. And you were kind of in a living conversation with the people who might hear this, who are as yet unborn what would you want to say to them and what would you want to know from them? Like what questions would you have and, and what, you know, time capsule piece of guidance would you try to provide? I think um, the time capsule that I would really love to leave behind is about choice and I'm, let's, I'm imagining, you know, teens, teens are just preteens and the, you know, when they start making independent choices and I would like to sort of pass on this time capsule and say that every time we make a choice and we make it every, it's every second of our day, every time we make a choice can we hold this notion in our head, in our heart, that we are part of a beautiful, living, creative, magnificent universe? And, and we are a part of that. We are a co-creator in that universe, and it's unfolding. So every choice we make co-creates the future for us, and for everyone else, co-creates an universe that we are, we are going to live into. And I wish someone had told me this when I was 15 or maybe 12 or 13. <laughs> I had had to, I've had to figure it out the really hard way. And yeah, so it's, it's basically holding the universe in my heart and knowing that I'm a part of it and a co-creator. And... I think what I would like to learn from them is what did they see and feel about the universe that they were born into? How did they experience it? 
what about it could would they want to keep and what about it would they want to keep evolving and perhaps make it a more beautiful world thank you again yeah sahana chatopadhyay thank you for being on future fossils thank you thank you so much michael lovely conversation thank you so much Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon.